Welcome, everybody, for, to those of you online in New Milford, Derby, and in, in Waterbury. Great to be together today. Thanks so much for the wonderful reading of the scriptures today. You know, if, we, if you remember last week, uh, if you're here in the sanctuary, you remember that I, I challenged us to uh, create what we decided this week to call section leaders for the different areas in the sanctuary to be greeters and to actually take on that area of the sanctuary and say, this is my area that I'm really going to make sure I know the people in this, in this area. So I want to ask you, if you volunteered to do that last week, would you just raise your hand? I just want to see something great, wonderful, awesome. I'm seeing just about every section covered, but I would say this. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. So really what these folks are going to do is they're going to be keeping their eye out for those who are new and making sure that they're connecting well with those who are walking through the door for the first time. So if you are here new today, I would encourage you to go see one of those folks who raised their hand. They can help you find your way here at Walnut Hill, help you get connected. Uh, ask, you can ask them questions. If they don't know the answers, they're going to get them for you. So we'd love to have you involved in that. Now, if you went away last week and you sensed God telling you, hey, that's something I ought to be doing, we have the signups at the, uh, the Get Connected table there on your way out the door, the welcome spot, if you will. Please sign up. We'd love to have more of you who are really here with your eyes wide open looking for those folks in the sanctuary who just need that touch, need to be connected with. So this week we continue our, our theme, which has been 10 insights on the kingdom of God. And we're looking at these great stories from scripture. Another one was read today uh, regarding the kingdom of God. So the context of this, this passage that we just read was Peter asking this question, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Jesus' response is not seven, but 70 times seven. Now, I think Peter thought that his idea of seven times was over and above the norm. Well, he, it was over and above the norm. And in that day, we find that the Pharisees were saying up to three times, that's enough. After that, you can dismiss that person or you don't have to keep forgiving them. And so I think you know, Peter's saying, I'm not just doubling that, but a little bit more, seven times. And he also knew that the significance of the number seven was important in Jewish culture. So, but Jesus takes it and he says, really, in essence, our forgiveness has to go on and on and on. That's the context to what we've just read. Now, Remember, I know this might be obvious, but it's sometimes, we sometimes forget when we're reading scripture, Jesus is, you know, still in bodily form walking with the disciples. He hasn't given them this perfect example of the cross, which is the ultimate example of forgiveness. So he's teaching them, and they don't have that, that perspective that we have because we've read scripture and we know what, what the end story is. So he's trying to teach them from, from his experiences, from his stories, What's going to happen? What's coming? So we have a sermon today on the forgiveness of debt, on forgiveness, on grace. If you've been in church for a long time, you've heard a sermon on grace many times. But it's such an important topic. It's so, it's so important for each of us to understand the power of the grace of God. Because in the kingdom of God, friends, in the kingdom of heaven, our debt is paid, and that's where, that's where we have to start, to re recognize and realize that our debt is paid. 
few years back, Amy and I went to Yankee Stadium, old Yankee Stadium, to watch a Yankees-Red Sox game. Now, you, if you know us, you know that we're Red Sox fans, so we knew we were stepping into enemy territory anyway. My wife was quite pregnant at the time. You know, you're going to ask me a lot of questions afterwards. What the heck was I thinking? And I don't know, in retrospect, what I was thinking. I can't remember if she was pregnant with our first or second, but she was obviously pregnant. And she, many of you don't know Amy, but she is a big fan of sports, and she even despite my pleading, decided to wear a Red Sox hat to the Yankee Stadium, Yankees-Red Sox game. And we didn't buy good tickets. We were up in the nosebleed section. And I didn't wear a hat that day. I mean, I think it was just it wasn't very sunny. I'm sure that's all it was. <laughs> As the game goes on, and it's a close game, and you know when you're in those upper sections, the beer starts to flow. It happens. It was getting tense. Close game. I don't remember exactly what happened, but there was a questionable call on the field. It didn't go the Yankees' way. And in a moment, my very pregnant wife and I became the scapegoats of our section, and the beer, half-empty beer cups came flying down at us, and we were soaked in seconds with beer. And in that moment, I felt, I think we might be cheering for the wrong team. Now, please don't hold me accountable to that because I'm not going to start cheering for the Yankees, but in that moment, I wanted to take that Red Sox hat and make it a Yankee hat and disappear because I thought, man, we are in a situation here. Now, when you, if you've read this story that we've just read, if you, if you were to try to put yourself back to when you first read it, or perhaps it was the first time you've ever heard it today, who do you start to cheer for in the story as you read it? If you don't know what the ending's gonna be, you start to cheer for the first servant, right? Because he steps into a situation where he has a debt he cannot pay. Not in a hundred lifetimes, by the way. That debt was something like a hundred times, or sorry, a thousand times the annual revenue of all of Israel at the time. So the story is meant to, to, to remind us that this servant could have never paid that debt. But you start to root for him. You hear him say, to the, to the king, be patient and I will pay it all. It's a man saying what he thinks the person he owes wants to hear. But he could have never done it. He could have never, ever done it. And it reminds us, as we read the story, that we have received an enormous debt of forgiveness from the king, our king. And it's one that we could have never, ever repaid. You cannot appease the Lord by your actions and activities, by your good deeds, by your well-intentioned activity in life. And the Lord didn't put us on a payment plan. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Because all that payment plan would have ever done was constantly remind us of our failure. Because we, we'd look at the payment plan, we'd look at the impossibility of ever paying it back, and it would just remind us of the failure in the first place. That's the extent of the sin in our lives. It, gets, it builds up day by day, moment by moment, and how could we ever repay it? That's where we are in this story as we begin to read it. So we're tracking with the underdog. We're tracking with the man who comes and asks for pity from the king. He gets, he's forgiven, and you're starting to feel good for this, this person. But then there's this oh-no moment. The story isn't going the way that I expected it to. What is he doing? He's just been forgiven this enormous amount. What is he doing now? 
And it drew me back to another story in scripture that I want to read to you. It's the story of Nathan and David, the King David and Nathan the prophet. I want to read it to you. It's going to be on the screen. It's a short story, but a really powerful one from 2 Samuel 12. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and grew, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the house of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. This is a powerful story, isn't it? Do you know a little bit of the background? It's summed up in the last sentence. David did this terrible thing. He was supposed to be off to war with his, his men. Instead, he stayed behind. He was bored. He was up on the roof of his home at a time of day he shouldn't have been, scanning the horizon. He sees a beautiful woman and basically finds a way to have her husband killed in battle so he could take her as his wife. It's a terrible story. This is the king. This is the guy they, they call the man after God's own heart. But why do they call him that? Because it's in a moment after a story like this where we see David's heart. We see him as a sinful man As we look in the mirror ourselves, we see ourselves as sinful men and women, but then we are faced with choices once we've sinned. We can continue to sin more, and if you look in the the history of the Old Testament and the kings, you might see stories of a situation similar similar to this where the king would just kill the, the prophet, hide the evidence, and keep on going, but David didn't do that, did he? He owned it. He owned what he had done. I'm not saying what he did was right or good, not in the least. And he doesn't say it is either. He owns it. He admits it. He accepts the consequences. And he repents and he moves forward. Nathan took the mirror and held it up to David and said, you're the man who did this thing. And David's response was a beautiful one. And it's what really makes him a man after God's own heart a man who knows that he's not perfect, that he's not holy in and of himself, but who looks in the mirror and accepts that reality that he's a sinful man, turns from his evil ways and follows the Lord even more in his, in his life. That's, that's the kind of thing we see here. And it's a similar story that Jesus is telling. He's putting the, he wants us to put the mirror up and look into it and ask us, how will we respond when we come to grips with the fact that we are sinful, that we have a debt we could never pay, we could never in a hundred lifetimes pay it off, what will we do with that information? 
we have to first come to grips with the fact that our debt is paid in the kingdom of God. Jesus did the payment. He made the payment. And it leads us to what he wants for us. Last week I talked about being a chip off the old block. It's similar here. We're supposed to now, having been forgiven, be like Jesus. Represent him well and go out and forgive our debtors. So as the story continues, we have this oh no moment. (laughs) What's going on here? And then we're forced to take sides against our own actions. If we see ourselves in that first servant, as I think we're supposed to, we are forced to take sides against that, that person. We're tracking with that first servant, right? We're relating to the enormous debt that's been forgiven. But then we say, now what is he doing? How can, how can we, how can he, who had been, given, been forgiven so extravagantly, now be not forgiving someone who just owes him a small amount, has, has hurt him or has owed him just a small amount. This was a, sel- a fellow servant who owed him very, very little in comparison. It reminds us of Jesus' words about prayer. In Matthew six twelve. he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It echoes this, this story that we ought to forgive as our king has forgiven us. These are the words of Jesus. And unforgiveness is a poisonous thing, friends. It really is. If we hold on to it, it becomes something that can grab a hold of us and affect us really deeply. We often think that when we hold on to unforgiveness, when we, when we try to, when, when we say to ourselves, I can't forgive and therefore I won't forgive this person or this situation, Here's what you're going to find about that. The punishment you're trying to mete out on someone else is going to just come back on you. You will only punish yourself with that unforgiveness in your life. Look at the example of the unforgiving servant here. What came of his unforgiveness? Nothing good. Nothing good. When we hold on to unforgiveness, it only hurts us in the end. It doesn't do the damage to the person we want to feel that pain It doesn't do that damage that we might hope it would do. And of course, it's not the way the Lord would ask us to handle these situations. So our debt is paid, friends. That's where we start. And then we're asked to forgive our debtors. But how do we do it? Because it's not as if it's just a simple thing to do, is it? I mean, this is one of those topics where we, each of us has situations in our lives where forgiveness has not been easy or is not currently easy. The first thing that we have to do is we have to receive the reconciliation of of Christ. We have to remember that Jesus first forgave us and Colossians 1, 19 and 20 helps us with this. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. What is reconciliation? To boil it down to its simplest terms, it's the restoring of a relationship. And in the case of Jesus, what he did is help to restore our relationship with God where no matter what we, we did, we are always gonna be sinful in the sight of God. But Jesus saw that we were standing on the outside looking in. Perhaps we were trying in vain to earn that forgiveness, but we, we couldn't get there. And, and so what he did is he, he gave to us this amazing grace that we sang about this morning. And he did it in an instant, 
not to be earned, but simply to be given as the greatest gift that we could imagine. The cross completely reconciled us with God. And it was Jesus' choice that did it. He went to the cross and became our sin on that cross and replaced our sin, even our sin nature, our shame and all that went with it, he replaced all of that with his spirit, his spirit in and through us, friends. Last week was Pentecost Sunday, and Pentecost Sunday represents when the Holy Spirit came down and met with, with uh, Peter and the disciples on that very special moment. So it was the, the day when the Holy Spirit became available to anybody who surrenders their life to Jesus. And I, and I just want to remind you, when you surrender to Jesus, or when you surrendered to Jesus, the Spirit came to live in you in that second, in that moment, at the same time, and the Spirit never leaves you. He's with you all the time. And sometimes we talk about more of the Spirit in my life, and, and really, when we say that, we're saying less of me in my life, more of the Spirit working in my life. The whole Spirit is ruling and reigning, working in my life right now, and in yours too, if you surrender to him. But so often our sin nature and, and the challenges of the day, our worries, all the things, they can get in the way. They can get in the way of this, the Spirit having full sway in our lives. But friends, we have this very amazing promise that the Spirit is living in and through us. What a great gift. See, forgiving, I think, requires the spirit of humble recognition that Jesus is, is this perfect example of forgiveness. And it also requires the spirit to enable us to act like Jesus. You can't do it on your own. You need the spirit to come and rule and reign. Listen to Ephesians three sixteen through 19. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May, your experience, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Some of us at different times in our lives say, I can't forgive. I can't. And I say to you in those moments, I say to myself in those moments, I've got to go to the cross in those, at those times. I have to look to the cross. And in this passage, it's one of my favorite passages. I actually often use this passage in wedding ceremonies because it points so powerfully to the cross. Listen to the words again in verse 18. How wide and long, how high, how deep. What's the image it's the cross, how wide, how high, um, how wide and long, high, deep. It's the cross. Paul's putting in front of us the image of the cross in the love of Christ, in his act to go to the cross. It's what enables us to realize that we can forgive and we, he can enable us to forgive. Well, not only is it important for us to receive that reconciliation of Jesus Christ, but we also have to recognize that that forgiveness process is progressive. Because right now you could be sitting in your chair saying, I am struggling to forgive someone right now. And you could be feeling a little guilty. I, I get that, I've been in that place before. 
But I wanna encourage you and remind you that this is a progressive process and the Lord is incredibly patient with us on this, the issue of forgiveness. It's a journey. Forgiveness is a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. Romans 12, two is a great verse that reminds us of that journey. It says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Now, do you think that happens overnight? No, it takes time. God is at work. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Reconciliation is not even always possible because, you know, as they say, it takes two to tango. It takes two people to reconcile with one another, and sometimes that is not even possible. Perhaps you have unforgiveness that you're working through about someone who's no longer even alive. So you're not gonna experience reconciliation, but because that person's not here with you, you can't actually have that, go through the work of reconciliation, but you can still forgive. You can still forgive. And sometimes you may want that reconciliation and, another, and the other party does, just doesn't want it. What do you do with that? What if the trust is so broken and you know the change isn't gonna come easily or quickly? It's important to be reminded that it's possible to forgive even without reconciliation. What we hope for, the ideal situation is that that broken trust can be healed, that that forgiveness can can be experienced, that 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 reconciliation can come together, that as the forgiveness happens, you can step into a healing relationship again, praying together, working towards that change. But friends, it doesn't always work that way, and it's always a progressive process. It takes time, and God is working in your life. He wants to take you through these steps. Then there's these words at the very end of this passage that say, from the heart. And sometimes I, we could wish that those words weren't there. <laughs> because if it didn't say from the heart, we might be able to sort of kind of fake it. But whenever those words from the heart are there, there's no faking it. Because the heart is sort of the seat of the Holy Spirit's presence, the seat, that kind of guttural place of of reality that we're something where we can't fake it. That's what I believe is being said right here. And this is something that the Lord seems to demand from us, from his disciples. It's important to, to, to be reminded in these moments that forgiveness is a decision. It's, it's not just a feeling. There are feelings involved, yes, but it's a decision. And I think for us, it's a decision that we have to make to ourselves and make some promises as we make that decision, regardless of what happens with the other person in the involvement there. Here are some of the promises, four of them, that are so important for us to notice. One, I won't dwell on it. It's a choice. It's a promise to myself. I'm not gonna dwell on that thing that wronged me. Again, progressive. Won't necessarily happen overnight. Second, I won't bring it up and use it against you. I think it was my brother who talked about the, the idea of you know, burying the hurt, but, which is great. We could try to bury it, but so often we draw a map 
to get back to that hurt so we can dig it back up and use it as a weapon against the person who has hurt us in a future fight. By a raise of hand, no, just kidding. <laughs> we've, 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 we do these things, don't we, sometimes? And the Lord really does want us to make a promise to him, to us, with the Spirit's help. I'm not gonna bring it up and get, use it against you. I'm really going to forgive you. Thirdly, I won't build my case by talking to others about it. I would just say, in the many years of church ministry, we're not good at this in the church. We are not good at this. We call it prayer requests. We call it... Um, <laughs> we call it lots of things. But what it is is, is gossip. What it is is... It's devastating stuff. It's devastating stuff. Now, there is a place for us to go to somebody for wisdom and counsel, absolutely. But that's one person. That's one person that you know can hold something in confidence. It's not, it's not you going to a group of people to feel better about the way you've handled something. That right there is disunifying disaster in the life of the church, and it's really ugly to the new person that comes through the doors and starts to pick up on it. Who wants to be around that? It's, it's, just, it's just really de devastating. And I, I would say in, in any church, it's an, easy one to, it's an easy thing to find, building cases by talking to others about it. This guy's not that good at this. Man, we need somebody else to do that. She, she um, you know, she's doing this or that or the other. I mean, it just, you make it up, figure it out. You know what I'm talking about. I don't have to give you examples. The last one, I won't let it stand between us or destroy our relationship. Now hear the word, I won't let it stand between us or destroy our relationship. That's the, that's the decision that you make. I, I will, con in other words, I will continue to love even if I don't get that reciprocation from, the, from that person or from in that situation. If you could make those four promises, if you could do it, wouldn't that change your outlook? Wouldn't it even change the words, I forgive you? It would be real. It would, it would be from the heart. It would be from that seat of where the good comes from the Lord. And it would impact the way you be, are able to behave in those situations that are uncomfortable afterwards. If we can truly hold to these promises we'll know that we did everything that we could. And at the end of the day, that's, that's how you sleep at night. You did everything you could. You did everything that you could do before the Lord to see reconciliation happen, to see forgiveness work its wonderful effect. Now it's up to the other person to do, or the other party to do what they can do, to do what they will do. And you can't control that, can you? Now these promises are about promises you make to the Lord between you and him, and perhaps with your little crew of people who are praying for you and helping you through these difficult situations. Now, how do you know if you've forgiven someone? I call it the fellowship hall um, effect. If somebody's wronged me, or I'm upset with someone or hurt by someone, if I see them from across the way, and I can legitimately say to myself, I, I wish that person well, I really do. And I can go up to that person and, and show love and kindness and walk away and feel good about that. I know that I've done the work in my heart 
Something's changed, something's transformed. That progressive work has gotten to a great place of forgiveness. And I think that's what the Lord would, would, that's where he'd want us to get to. It doesn't mean that that person across the hall has to be my best friend moving forward. That's not what's being asked of here. Sometimes we get hurt and trust is broken to a point where that friendship isn't gonna be the same as what it was. That relationship isn't gonna be the same as what it was. But can I pray a prayer blessing for that person Can I really want the best for them? Can I look them in the eye and know in my heart that I really do want them to do well? That's a good, for me, a good way to know if that forgiveness has really happened in my life. I want to close with a little story that I'm going to read to you and then talk a a bit about it. It's about some monks. When was the last time you heard a monk story on a Sunday? Here you go. A group of monks set off on a journey through the desert to another monastery from the one that they lived in. Traveling through the desert is always dangerous as the environment is inhospitable and life-threatening. As the story goes, the young monk appointed to guide the fraternity of monks gets lost. But the others continue unquestioningly to follow his meanderings, realizing that their lives are at risk. Maybe the young monk refuses to ask for directions. Ever been in a car with someone who wouldn't ask for directions? A little bit too proud in that moment, perhaps. But eventually, he's forced to acknowledge he is lost. We know, replied his brothers. The young monk is amazed that no one complained or criticized him and realizes they all thought maintaining unity was more important than pointing out his faults and failures or proving themselves right. Now, the counterintuitive nature of this story, it it occurs because it holds love to the highest, as the highest good in this situation. Even more important than being right, which is a hard one for us sometimes, right? It is for me. You You can dismiss the story, obviously a fictional story, you could dismiss the story as impractical and foolish, but the real point is not to reward wrong behavior, and sin, like missing the mark, or is it to tolerate bad leadership? We're not supposed to do any of those things, but it's supposed to force us as Christians to consider how important brotherly and sisterly love and that bond of peace in the community and unity in the body really is to the Lord. That's what it's supposed to remind us of. Do we put that as a high priority in the church, in our lives, do we put unity above being right or proving ourselves or making sure that our case is well constructed? I think our sin nature tends to want to do those, those, those things, the things that prove our, our, our rightness. But the Holy Spirit wants to do the opposite. The Holy Spirit wants us to, to take unity, oneness, and put it on a much higher pedestal than rightness, than being proven right. He, the Holy Spirit wants to put the forgiveness of our debts and the forgiving of those who have done something against us far above the opposite. The scripture that captures that for me is also in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 2 to 4. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, 
making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. Now, the Greek in this passage that says make every effort is the same kind of word or is a word that means to strive eagerly, diligently, earnestly. So there's, a, there's this kind of passionate sense about this word. And it's the same word that a gladiator might have used when he sent his men to fight to the death in the Colosseum. Make every effort to stay alive today. It's that same word. I want to say to us today, so too must we as believers agonize for peace and unity. We're called to. Token efforts, half-hearted attempts at reconciliation, it just falls far short of what Paul was writing about here in this passage. It must be from the heart. That's what we're called to do. And one of the reasons I wanted to go strong on this point to end, and I'll invite the worship team to come back up now, was because I think in a transition time in a church, Disunity is one of the ways that problems happen so often in churches. And I want to encourage us to value unity so highly in this season that the Lord will take us through it into the next season stronger, stronger, more committed to one another, more committed to the Lord at work in us as a community, not just us as individuals. And I want to remind you, this is not some simple process. Forgiveness is not simple. Reconciliation is not simple. There's work that we have to do in it. There's choices that we have to make for the sake of oneness and unity in Christ, friends. So let me remind you that your debt is paid. How about an amen about that? Yeah, yeah. But we must also forgive our debtors. We're called to it. We do it by receiving first the wonderful reconciliation of Jesus Christ, what he gives us in an instant when we come to him and surrender, what he's given us in his spirit, ruling, reigning, living in and through us. Remember that he's doing a a progressive work in you. It's that word sanctification. He is making you into the man or the woman that he has designed you to be. He's doing it progressively. He's doing it gently, but he wants you to be progressive. He wants you to move in a direction towards becoming that person. It takes work, it takes diligence, it takes an eagerness to really want to be a chip off the old block. Be like Jesus. And Lord, he wants us to do it from the heart, from the heart. He wants us to do it in a sincere, genuine way because we want to serve him more than we want to serve ourselves. We want to see his church expanded more than we want to see our kingdom expanded. Because in his kingdom, our debt is paid. And we are those who forgive those who have hurt us. Let's stand together and let's close in a, in a song that will remind you of the, the incredible grace of the Lord this morning. Let's sing it boldly and loudly as a proclamation to our Lord this morning.